Hello and welcome to Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Polly. Today we are going to be discussing the Trinity, probably one of those issues that Christians say they believe in, that, but then at the same time we don't really know much about. And hopefully this is something that interests you because, look, if you are going to say, I believe in God, I believe that God is triune, hopefully you have an understanding of what that means, right? If I say, I know my wife, but I don't know the details about her, uh, then how well do, can you really say that I know her? And so hopefully, even though there are aspects of God that are difficult, there are things about God that we cannot understand. We are finite. God is infinite. There are definitely details that God has revealed to us. And so we should know those things. If we truly love him, we're studying, we're trying to understand him more deeply. And the Trinity is one that is so confusing, but hopefully... We love God. We want to do our best to understand him and to accurately represent him. And so throughout this episode, throughout the show today, we are going to be discussing three main things. There are kind of four. We're going to be looking at some objections to the Trinity. Then we're going to look at, is the Trinity logical? Is it biblical? And then finally, what are some heresies, some bad analogies? And so hopefully by the end, the goal, the objective is that you will be able to accurately describe the Trinity to someone who is asking and show that it is both logically possible and that it is biblical. And so that is the goal of the show today. So uh, as always, let me just give that contact information. If you're listening on podcast, uh, you can always write in with your questions on email at contact at coffeehousequestions.com. You can follow on facebook.com slash coffeehousequestions. Uh, get a lot of information there, as well as follow on Instagram or Twitter at ryanpolly 3 where I post a lot. I ask questions, and you can also get information. And then finally, you can text those things, those questions and comments in at 714-989-6927. And then again, if you are listening on podcast, this is also being broadcast live on YouTube, generally on Thursdays. But again, follow on social media to know when it's going live so you can interact live with the recording. And so with that, we're going to jump into our discussion of the Trinity and looking at some objections really quick. So what do other people have to say about the Trinity? Well, some may object and say, look, the Trinity was something that was invented by Satan. He's trying to deceive us. Well, uh, this is not really grounded really in anything. It's just a mere assertion that presumes something that is simply just not true. Now, an objection that you might find uh, more frequently is one that says that it is uh, the Trinity comes from pagan influences uh, in the church uh, and it's you know kind of pagan teaching. Um, that this idea of the Trinity being, you know, of, of God being three in one, this is similar to some Egyptians or Babylonians or some Hindu pantheistic pandeist, versions. Uh, but they, they, what they, this doesn't do is it doesn't distinguish the details of what the Trinity truly is and what these other views are. And when you look at them, you realize it truly is different. Now, one that's probably the most common objection is that the Trinity was invented at the Council of Nicaea along with the deity of Christ, right? You, if you've ever talked to a Jehovah's Witness, this is probably something that they have said to you is, hey, the deity of Christ and the Trinity was invented at the Council of Nicaea. However, uh, the, what happened at Nicaea is that the, the doctrine of Jesus was clarified. It was not invented. People were not sitting around inventing and making up things that they wanted to say and believe about Jesus. What they were doing is saying, hey, these are things that have 
been believed and held by the church for since since the time of Christ. And now they are being attacked, mainly through Gnosticism and false and Arianism and false teachings. And so we need to clarify and be very clear and upfront about what it is exactly that we believe about Jesus. And so it was not at this council that the Trinity was in, invented. It's also not at this council that the deity of Christ was invented. It is here that it was clarified instead. Now, one of the things that we're going to be looking at and that I discussed at the beginning is this objection that the Trinity is actually illogical, right? And if you saw the videos, uh, what normally happens is people go, look, it's a simple math equation. You have one God Father, you have another God Jesus, and you have God, the, the Holy Spirit. One plus one plus one equals Three. You have three gods. Christians, you are polytheists. And this is maybe what like a, a Muslim would do, you know, and the Christians are polytheists. Now, Christians try to play a little math game, as I joke sometimes, and say, you know, Christians go, no, it's not one plus one plus one. It's one times one times one. So you still get one. Now, this is a silly little math game that Christians like to play, but it is unnecessary when you understand what the Trinity really is. And this is where we get to one of the first major points of the Trinity, and it's this. The Trinity is one being in three persons. I remember a few years back sitting at a church where there was actually a Mormon role play being done by Brett Kunkel uh, from Maven, and, and he he mystified the Trinity. And I do this every single time I do an atheist role play. I mystified the Trinity. I say the Trinity is three beings in one being or three persons in one person. And I have never had anyone correct my definition of the Trinity. No one has said, hold on, you just mystified it. The Trinity is not three beings in one being or three persons in one person. It is three persons in one being. Never. And even in this church this of adults in this role play taking place, uh, Brett asked a few times, isn't that what you believe about the Trinity? And the whole church says, yeah, that's what we believe. And it was a misdefinition. Here's why it's important is that when you're talking about beings and persons, if you have three beings and one being, that is a logical problem. That is logically incoherent. If you have three persons in one person, that is logically incoherent. And that is what the math equation, one plus one plus one being three, would be when you're talking about the same type of thing. Three beings would equal three beings. You can't get three beings in one being. However, when you're talking about two different categories or two different things, then you can have three in one. Now, this is a heresy, so don't take this to be a view of the Trinity, but if you were to say my father and my mother and me and my two brothers are five people, but it equals one family. Now, again, don't say this Trinity is like five people in one family. It's not. But what this is simply trying to get you to recognize is that you can have five in one when you're talking about people and families. In the same way, you can have five, you can have, sorry, you can have three in one when you're talking about persons and beings because we're not talking about the same thing. And so it's really important for us to recognize that the, the objection that the doctrine of the Trinity is incoherent or illogical is only done so when you, you misunderstand and misdefine the Trinity. When you understand the Trinity is three persons and one being, it is no longer a logical impossibility. And this is important. When we talk about persons, we are talking about who. The person is who you are. Right? So who are you? Well, who am I? I am Ryan. When we're talking about a being, we're talking about what you are. What are you? I'm a human being. What am I? I'm human. Right? And so us as humans, we are one what? Human being. And we are one who? 
Ryan Polly, or whoever you are. So when we're talking about God, God is one what, a divine being, and three who's, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when we understand this, this objection simply goes away. We need to use the right terminology. Now, another reason why we asked the question, was it biblical, is an objection that you might get is that the word Trinity is never in the Bible, right? The Bible never uses the word Trinity. So why, why Christians do you believe in it? Well, that is true. The word Trinity is never in the Bible. But same way that the word you know, hypostatic union or God-man or penal substitution or creation ex nihilo, those words are not used in the Bible either, but they are ideas that we draw from Scripture, right? And so we read Scripture, and then we have sometimes terms that we use to describe the things that we read. And so the word Trinity, yes, it's not there, but the word Trinity is used to describe what we see in Scripture, which are four essential affirmations. So let's jump to these four essential affirmations here really quick. The first one is that there is only one God. There's only one God. The second affirmation is that there are three distinct persons. There are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The third affirmation is that each person fully and completely shares of the divine attributes of God. And then fourthly, the three persons are distinct. They are not each other. And so those are the four things that we're going to look at here. And so hopefully some of those objections have been answered. We look at the Trinity being logical. Now we're going to spend just a little bit of time and we're going to work through some passages, looking at the Trinity being biblical and looking at these four affirmations. And then we'll finish our last bit of time together, looking at some bad analogies, some heresies. So firstly, there is only one God. This is clear through scripture. We see in Isaiah 43, I am he before me, there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I am the Lord and besides me, there is no savior. Isaiah 44, I am the first and I am the last. And beside me, there is no God. There is a God beside me. Yeah, no, there is no God. I know of not any. You see in Isaiah 46, I am uh, to whom will ye liken me and make me equal and compare me that I that uh, that we may be like that we may be like for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord and in in my name and my glory I will give to no other. Right? We we see this in other passages. Let me find one here really quick. Where's the other one written down? Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right, we, and we see this again, even in the New Testament, Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Right. So hopefully we see this very clearly. Scripture is clear. There is only one God. Now, what what do we know about this God? What are some of these attributes? Because when we get to the persons, then we're going to say the persons share the attributes. Well, what are some of the attributes of God? Well, you know, God has both communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. His communicable attributes are the attributes that he shares with humans, attributes that both he and humans have. Incommunicable attributes are going to be the ones that only God has. So, for example, God is holy. Only he is holy. God is eternal. God is the only eternal, necessary, self-existing being. We are not. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. We see God being all-powerful. 
God is everywhere present, omnipresent, that he is both transcendent and imminent, that he is in all places for all times, and that he is unchanging. God has not changed. Then some of the communicable attributes would be things like God is wise and God is righteous. He is loving. We are also loving. That's why I'd be communicable. Uh, he is merciful and gracious. So these are some of those characteristics that we see of, of who God is, right? And we live in a culture that people want to define God however they want. I just covered this, this uh, idea in my class where students ask me, why are there so many gods? And I think there's a lot of, you know, quite a few different reasons for this, whether, you know, it's, it's that someone creates an inventive view of God and then convinces a bunch of people that they're right. You have others that, you know, for example, back in, you know, a while ago is that people would see things that were powerful like the sun or the ocean or something and say, there has to be some sort of deity behind this. And so they have Poseidon, the God of the sea, and you have Ra, the sun God. Uh, but today, I think there are so many different views of God because we think we can define God however we want. But that's not true. We don't get to make Jesus in our likeness or how we want him to be. We have to see him for who he is. And the same is with God. In the same way that you can't say, oh, I know Ryan Pauly and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe him however I want and start making up stuff that's not true about me. The moment you say that I'm six foot five and I, you know, you start giving characteristics, you go, well, you're not talking about the same Ryan. It doesn't work that way. And so we see that God has revealed himself to us in certain ways. There are characteristics and attributes that God has. And so the first essential affirmation is that God is one and there's many verses for that. Secondly, is that we see is that the Father is God. For example, a few verses, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. John 6, 27 says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God, the Father, has set its seal, set his seal. 2 Peter 1, 17. He received honor and glory from God, the Father. Right? So there's three verses that I think make very clear that the Father is God. Next, we have the fact that Jesus, the Son, is God. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of glory, being Jesus, the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we see many of these things. Also, we see that Jesus shares and manifests the, some of the incommunicable attributes, or many of them. In fact, a funny story is, is a, when I was a missionary in the Dominican Republic, I started the coffee house ministry that led to coffee house questions. And one night, no one was coming into the coffee house, and across the street was the university, and the Jehovah's Witnesses would always go set up their stand right there in front of the university. And so one night, I said, hey, I'm going to write up a document in Spanish that shows that Jesus is Jehovah, that Jesus is God, that he shares of these incommunicable attributes. Then I'll take it to the Jehovah's Witnesses, and I'm going to see what they have to think about this. And so I, I wrote up my piece of my document, and the title was Jesus es Jehovah. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is God. And I had eight reasons or something why. And I take it down. I said, hey, I've been doing some Bible study. And they're like, oh, that's awesome. I said, will you check out this piece of paper? And will you tell me where you think I went wrong if I am or if I have it right? And they said, absolutely. So I hand them the paper. The guy reads the first line, like eight reasons why Jesus is Jehovah and immediately shoves the paper back in my face and says, I'm not reading this. I'm not looking at this. I'm not 
even going to entertain this thing. And it was very, very upset by it. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't look. But what we see are some of these things. So we, we look at, you know, what are the things that Jesus did and what did Jesus have to say about himself? Well, Jesus claimed to be equal with God, right? We see this where, where he, he, he's claiming to forgive people's sins, right? We see this where, um, uh, you know, your sins are forgiven. Who are you to forgive sins? Only God can do that. We see that he claimed to be Jehovah. He, he claims in, in, you know, in, in Exodus 3.14 where God says, I am who I am. And then Jesus repeats this in the New Testament uh, in, in a few different places. Right? We see he, him claiming to be the Messiah. We see Jesus uh, accepting of worship. Right? We, we see multiple times where Jesus accepted worship. And hi, Leo. I see that you just jumped on. Welcome. Um, we also see that he claimed to have the authority of God, right? Where, where Jesus says, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that the ancients were told, but I say it to you, right? Here's what the Old Testament says, but here's the things that I have to say. Jesus claimed deity by requesting prayer in his name, right? If you do this in my name, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 14, 13, and 14. Right? And so he claims to be God in several different ways. We see other examples where we see God as being creator. In the verses that I, that I shared with you just a little bit ago, where God, you know, God says, I, I stretched out the heavens. I don't have that reference written down. I forgot. But you know, the verse that says, I stretched out the heavens. I made it by myself. But then we see in John 1, 3, Jesus being the creator. And we see in Colossians chapter 1, Jesus as creator. We saw here in Isaiah 43, it says, uh, I read for there being, uh, for there only being one God. It says, I am the Lord and beside me there is no Savior. We're, well, in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, I think there's also one in the, in the first five verses of Titus chapter 2, where it says, uh, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our glory and great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we see things like the Old Testament saying only Yahweh, Jehovah, God is the creator, but then Jesus created. God is the savior. Jesus is the savior. And so we see over and over again, Jesus is God. Then finally, uh, the Holy Spirit is God. And we see this clearly, I think, in Acts chapter 5, where Ananias and Sapphira go to Peter and Peter, Ananias lies to Peter. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then later goes on and says, you have not lied to man, but to God. Lying to the Holy Spirit is equal to lying to God because the Holy Spirit is God. First Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? First Corinthians 6.11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of of our God. And then also we see the spirit manifesting several of the attributes of God, uh, of God, one being omnipresence in Psalm 139.7, omniscience in 1 Corinthians 2.10.11, and omnipotence in Job 33.4. And so hopefully these are examples here looking at how both the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit equally share in the divine attributes of the one God. The final thing that we have to make in our affirmations is that these beings, sorry, these persons are separate. That it's not one being manifesting himself in three different ways, but they're three separate persons. And we see examples of this in scripture where, where in, for example, Matthew 28, right? We, we go and we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We see also examples of this in um, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. Hebrews chapter 9, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Second uh, Corinthians 13 verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And then ultimately in Matthew chapter 3, uh, where Jesus is being baptized. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Right? And so in this passage, we see the Father in heaven speaking down to the Son, Jesus the Son in the water, and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. This is not possible with one person, one being, but it is possible when you have three persons that exist in three different spatial locations at the same time, uh, you have three distinct different persons. And so here's what we see with these four affirmations of the Trinity. And hopefully I've given enough verses to show, look, this is biblical. This is not something that was just invented at some council. It's not invented by the devil. It's not just based on pagan ideas, but this is clearly, clearly taught in scripture. And so hopefully that makes sense. Now, what I want to do is spend the last bit of time that we have together, and I want to go over some bad analogies, ways that things that you should not use when you describe the Trinity. Now, I want to encourage you to check out the video if you haven't seen it yet on my YouTube channel, just search Ryan Pauly, uh, Is the Trinity Biblical Video? And I draw out a triangle, which hopefully you've seen before, that it is a great way that, to represent the four essential, essential affirmations of the Trinity. I think this is an easy way that if you're trying to draw it out, if you're trying to help students and, and, and kids picture and understand the Trinity more, this is what we should draw rather than some of these bad analogies. Because what we see with the different analogies that people use, which I'll bring up some of them now, each one gives a false view. Each one is going to either dismiss the oneness of God. It's going to dismiss the fact that each person is fully and completely God or it's going to dismiss the distinction between the persons. So for example, some of the illustrations used for the Trinity is that we talk about one man with three personal roles, right? And this is called the, the, the this is, this would be considered uh, modalism where I am one man, I'm one being, I'm one person, but I have the role of a husband. I have the role of a teacher and I have the role of a speaker, right? And so when I, and a podcast, you know, so when I'm doing this, I'm podcasting or YouTubing. And when I'm with my wife, I'm, I, I'm the husband role. And when I'm with my students, I'm teacher role, right? But this would be, again, one person, one being in three different roles. This would dismiss the distinction of the three different persons where we see the father in heaven, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and Jesus in the water. The most common, probably heresy and false analogy that is often used is the one of water, where water is in three different modes. This is, you know, it's a, it can be a gas, it can be a liquid, or it can be a solid. This would also be modalism, where you have one particle of water that can exist as either gas, liquid, or solid, but you can't have one particle of water be solid, liquid, and gas all at the same time. Now, if you want to say, well, no, you have three molecules of water. Well, now you have three distinct, different, separate molecules of water that are not equal in all their attributes. And so now you have tritheism. And so this also would fail to work. So don't use the water example. 
People often use an egg and say the egg is like the Trinity is like an egg because you have the shell, you have the white, and you have the yolk. And so you have the three parts that make one egg. Well, this has two possible heresies as well. You can either have tritheism where the shell, the white, and the yolk are all three, the egg or God, so to speak, for this analogy. And then you would have three separate distinct things as God, but they're not equal because the shell is clearly different than the white, which is clearly different than the yolk. And so you have tritheism, three different gods, or you have partialism, that the shell is part God. The yolk, sorry, the shell would be part egg. The white would be part egg and the yolk is part egg. Put all three together and you have one egg. So each one's kind of 33% or one third egg. If you would try to make the same analogy with the Trinity, if you say Jesus is 33% God and the Holy Spirit's 33% God and the Father's 33% God, then you would have partialism. Each one is part of God. And this, again, denies the fact that each one is fully and completely God sharing of those divine attributes. A three-leaf clover is another one. This would be either, again, tritheism, right? Three-leaf clover, each one is part of it or, uh, or each one is fully God, but then one clover or you have partialism. Each one is part of the clover, part God. Uh, you have uh, the sun is in another example that people often get is that uh, you, have, uh, you have the sun, but then you have heat and you have light. And this would be Arianism, that the light and the heat are creations of the sun, but they again are not equal as the sun. They are creations of the sun. They're not equal to it. And so this would be like the Father or God, and then Jesus and the Holy Spirit are creations of it. This is what like Jehovah's Witnesses would believe, that Jesus is a creation of God, but not eternal with God, which would be one of those divine attributes. And so we recognize that, for example, one of the biggest heresies that people believe is modalism, where God is one substance, one person, and this one divine person functions in three personal roles or modes of operation. So he changes his mode of substance or he changes his role, but it's one person, one being. And this is going to reject the biblical notion that the divine substance simultaneously subsists as three persons. Most modalists affirm that Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and this is where you get that problem, is the rejecting of the three persons. Tritheism, as I talked about, give a quick little definition as we're wrapping up tritheism. There are three distinct gods. Each god has his own numerical distinct substance. Each god is a distinct person. Each god has a distinct personal role. This results in three numerically distinct beings that are part of this just kind of one purpose. You know, another example would be the United States government is another example of that. And so hopefully that helps see some examples there. The problem, it rejects this problem. It rejects the biblical notion that there is only one divine being by nature. So this would be more like polytheism. And so hopefully these are some ways, some, some things that we need to stay away from. And hopefully the encouragement Look, if we are going to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we want to be able to clearly describe who he is. Is the Trinity a mystery in some ways? Absolutely. Can we fully wrap our minds around how it is possible? No, but there are some certain ways, I think, that, de that definitely can help us understand it.
right? Again, we can use some illustrations that they're not good. We probably shouldn't. You know, I use a couple. I use the example, like I mentioned, five persons in one family, not saying this is the Trinity, but simply getting, giving you the idea or, or helping you see the difference when we're talking about two different things, persons and family. You can have five in one. I also sometimes have the example of uh, Cerberus, the, the dog that guards the gates of Hades, that you have one creature with three heads and each head has its own consciousness and can interact and talk with the other. Now, again, that's not the Trinity, but that just helps us wrap our mind around the possibility of having three persons, three distinct centers of consciousness in one being that is God. So I would never say the Trinity is like Cerberus or the Trinity is like these things, but it does help us understand these different aspects. I would, though, personally stay away from water and eggs and that sort of thing. I just don't think that they help. So hopefully this has helped you grasped a little bit of a deeper understanding of why Christians believe in the Trinity, how we can accurately describe it with the four essential affirmations. There's only one God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three persons. Each one is fully and completely God, sharing of the divine attributes. And then fourth, each one is distinct from another. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. So hopefully this has helped in understanding a little bit better the Trinity and how you can explain that to those who question. Thank you all so much for listening to the show this week. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new about the Trinity. Make sure you mark your calendars for this coming Monday, November 11th. I will be interviewing Dr. Paul Gould on his new book, Cultural Apologetics. You won't want to miss that one. If you've enjoyed the show today, please give it a rating on your podcasting app, share it with a friend or family member, and then head over to Patreon where you can support the work of this ministry and all the videos, podcasts, and articles that are being produced. Thank you all so much for listening. Sip coffee, think deeply. This is Coffee House Questions with Ryan Pauly. Ah. Uh...